Um, let me just um, say a few words about the lecture series. Uh, um, this is uh, the Princeton Public Lecture Series, and uh, Professor Knoll is speaking in uh, as a Stafford Little lecturer. Uh, the Stafford Little uh, lecture series began way back in 1899 with a substantial bequest back then of $10,000 by a Princeton alumni named Henry Stanford Little of the class of 1844. And the series has gone on uh, for over a century since, uh, featuring such luminaries as uh, Thurgood Marshall, Henry Stimson, uh, Albert Einstein, Theodore Roosevelt, George Fredrickson, many uh, you know, uh, distinguished scholars, historians, literary people. And um, I want to thank um, the Princeton Public Lecture Committee for co-sponsoring uh, this event. Uh, my name, by the way, is Fred Appel. I'm the religion editor of Princeton University Press. And Princeton University Press is uh, a proud co-sponsor of this lecture and all Princeton uh, Public Lectures series um, of this sort. And uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, Professor Knoll will be um, um, writing up his lectures and uh, uh, Princeton University Press will be publishing a book based upon uh, the three uh, lectures this week. So um, we have someone here tonight, uh, Professor Marie Griffith of the Department of Religion of Princeton University, who will be um, introducing Professor Knoll. Um, pro uh, Professor Griffith uh, joined the faculty at Princeton University in 2003, and her field is uh, American religious history, with, uh, and she has interests in women and gender, and in ethnography and bodily disciplines. She's the author of um, some very notable books, including God's Daughters, Evangelical Women and the Power of Submission, and Born Again Bodies, Flesh and Spirit in American Christianity. And she's also going to be the author of a very exciting book on American evangelicals and historical attitudes towards sex and sexuality to be published by W.W. W. Norton. So uh, if Marie is ready, I'll have her come up and she can introduce our lecturer for this evening. Thank you, Fred, and good evening. It is my privilege to introduce Mark Knoll, the Francis A. McEnany Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame, in his third lecture here at Princeton this week. Those of you who have attended one or both of Mark's previous lectures are by now well aware of his distinguished stature as a historian of American religion, most notably of 18th and 19th century Protestantism and particularly evangelicalism. And you know by now that he has made essential contributions to the intellectual life of Christians in America today through his celebrated public writings as well as his scholarship. He's published in venues too numerous to note here. And I want to say that besides being a tireless historical researcher and a scrupulously careful analyst of both the past and the present, he is an elegant and crystal clear writer, modeling an unusual combination of both intelligence and accessibility in uh, contemporary scholarship. 
Mark is revered, in short, both inside and outside the academy. When, earlier this year, the provost of Wheaton College announced Mark's departure for the University of Notre Dame, he observed, Noel is an exemplar of all that's good in Christian academia. He sets the standard of what it means to be a Christian scholar and a Christian teacher. That seems by all measures completely true, and it is just as true when one deletes the modifier from those sentences to say Noel is an exemplar of all that's good in academia. Mark's work is, then, as respected outside Christian scholarly circles as it is within them, and he has served as an inspiration for countless other students and scholars, both those within and outside the evangelical fold, and not to mention uh, the many who seem to have one foot in and one foot out. Uh, He has inspired all of us to aspire to his high scholarly standards. His generous encounters with scholars and students across the spectrum of religious affiliation and non-affiliation, and his support through the Institute for the Study of Evangelicals, even for those who do not share his viewpoint, have served as influential paradigms for others of us who seek scholarly and personal engagement with others across political, cultural, and religious lines. And indeed, his work makes plain the wrong-headedness of the slate of books now flooding the marketplace that denounce contemporary evangelicals as a monolithic, brainwashed troop of fascists. I want to highlight and pay tribute to the import of Mark's focus on race and racism in this lecture series. There are, of course, others at this institution and others who have had a great deal to say about race in American religious history. But Mark's eminence in so many evangelical circles, and particularly Uh, in this case, white evangelical circles, among others, this eminence means that the impact of slavery and racism on our common religious and political history can no longer be politely evaded or helplessly shrugged off uh, in those settings. There are other such difficult and painful topics of social inequality and inequity and injustice on which we hope that Mark will continue to speak so loudly. And fortunately, to judge by his record, Mark has many more great books in him to write. Please join me now in welcoming again Professor Mark Knoll in his final public lecture on race, religion, and American politics from Nat Turner to George W. Bush. Princeton has a great reputation for academic scholarship, and I think it, at least in my case, has a great reputation now for uh, warm and, I think, gilding the lily introductions. But 
It was great. <laughs> I appreciate that, those words very much. The third um, lecture is entitled Civil Rights, the Republican White Evangelical Alliance, and the Endurance of Evil in the Land of the Free. My argument to this point is that American political history from the 1820s to the 1950s was decisively influenced first by the controversies that brought on the Civil War and then by the results of the Civil War and Reconstruction in adjudicating those controversies. I've also suggested that configurations of race and religion were crucial for national politics throughout this entire period. Religiously motivated people heightened the political antithesis over slavery even as they shied away from confronting issues of race. Religion played a critical role in subverting Reconstruction and the possibility of a racially just society, even as it provided a powerful force for African-American self-determination. After the Civil War, religion gave way before other influences as the determining force in national political life, even as it retained great strength for individuals and communities in several variations and in many regions of the country. In the decades between the end of Reconstruction and the end of the Second World War, religion exerted only a sporadic influence on national politics, in large part because while race remained a prime determinant of American political life, there were no significant religious stimulants to raise the salience of race as there had been with the antebellum arguments over slavery and the white church's role in ending Reconstruction and as there would be in the era of civil rights. To be sure, religion did surface episodically in national politics. Temperance movement that led to the 18th Amendment in 1919 represented the last gasp of the evangelical united front of the 19th century, which except on temperance was busily dividing itself into mutually antagonistic sub-movements by the early 20th century. The fact that prohibition was only a modest social success and that it could not sustain widespread popular support indicated the relative marginality of the temperance religion connection. The one uh, real exception to the thesis I'm driving home this week about the overwhelming importance of race and religion in American politics is, of course, the, the Great Depression and the New Deal. The rise of the Democratic Party under uh, Franklin Roosevelt than the outworking of uh, the New Deal, as, as well as the increased role for the federal government, uh, was uh, the, the, the one great instance in American history of system, systematic political change not driven by race and religion. But if, if I can refer to the graph that's on the uh, reverse side of your outline tonight, which again charts the, uh, the, the proportion of a state's popular vote for the Democratic candidate for president over the national percentage, so the lines of uh, the state lines above one are the, are the Democratic states, the states below one are the uh, Republican states. What the graph uh, can show is that even with the great changes of the New Deal, the, uh, the placement of the states in the, either the Republican or the Democratic period the uh, Democratic Party remained quite constant. For the period after World War II, American politics returned to the earlier, more enduring pattern where deep-seated changes were driven by race in consort with religion. Tonight, I'm treating this political history of recent past 
as a rupture, but also a continuation of the arrangements on race that, with the major support of the churches, were fixed in place in the 1870s and 1880s. The story I want to sketch is outlined in the, your handout, but can be summarized like this. First, the civil rights movement was driven by a number of important influences, but the spark provided by black religion was critical. American national history shifted decisively when the river of African-American faith, which had been contained in its own channel since the post-bellum years, broke through its banks and overflowed the national landscape. Second, the civil rights movement was successful in large part because religious support for it was strong and religious opposition to it was weak. Third, the success of the civil rights movement precipitated a political reaction which, although it drew on some racist impulses, was more directly a product of resentment at the expansion of central government that had been exemplified most visibly by the federal support for civil rights. Now, uh, as with all of my efforts in recent American history, I'm overwhelmingly indebted to the uh, scholarship of others. Some of you will recognize tonight that my presentation is, is a variation uh, on the arguments published by David Chappelle in a 2004 book, A Stone of Hope, Prophetic Religion and the Death of Jim Crow, and I am uh, deeply indebted to Chappelle, but also to some of those who have modified or challenged or adjusted the arguments that Chappelle has made. And I've much, been much assisted by the scholarship of a few others of, of the names listed on the outline, and, and actually quite a few more. The place I'd like to begin is to assert that African-American religion, particularly as it had been developing from the end of slavery, provided a crucial spark for the modern civil rights movement. To be sure, a lot else lay behind the movement than simply African-American religion, but the conviction is summarized by David Chappelle that God was on their side was foundational in driving the advocates of civil rights and sustaining them until at least they had reached some of the goals of the movement. Three points are important to clarify about the nature of this African-American religion that has meant so much for contemporary history. First, the religion that inspired the civil rights movement was a complex amalgamation in which the justly lionized contributions of Martin Luther King Jr and other visible leaders represented only one element. This elite element, as even casual observers know, was powerful. It is sometimes not realized, however, how many different strands had flown, uh, flowed together into this elite African-American thought. First, it grew from a root of prophetic evangelical biblicism, stretching back through Henry McNeil Turner and Elias Camp Morris to Daniel Alexander Payne and beyond. But the root of prophetic biblicism had also been expanded by other important influences. Some of what was added came from white sources, as in King's case, the philosophical personalism taught at Boston University by Edward, Edgar Breitman, or even more generally, the post-liberal Christian realism of Reinhold Niebuhr. More significant than these white sources, however, was the contribution of a full generation of African-American intellectuals who from the 1910s to the 1940s extrapolated the legacy of 19th century black religious thought into a dynamic form of modern Protestantism. As a number of historians have shown, Walter 
Fluker, Randall Jelks, and I'm relying tonight especially upon the work of Dennis Dickerson. Black religious thought in the interwar years was aggressively on the move. The roster of key individuals included several whose writings and face-to-face teaching played a direct role in the later civil rights movement. But perhaps even more important than specific contributions to individuals was the creation of an entire body of thought. Mordecai W. Johnson, for example, was the long-term president of Howard University who encouraged many of these thinkers to push beyond religious analysis to a, a systematic understanding of culture as a place where religion was active. Benjamin Mays, the dean of the Harvard Divinity School and then from 1946 the president of Morehouse College, in the 1930s outlined much that would be developed more fully by others in his train. Mays' 1933 volume, The Negro's Church, which he authored with Joseph W. Nicholson, who was a minister of the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church, used an extensive survey of black rural and urban congregations to demonstrate that African-American congregations responded positively when their preachers preached about the brotherhood of all races. Mays, in 1938, then published a much-noted book, The Negro's God is Reflected in His Literature, and in 1939, a little-noticed pamphlet, The American Negro and the Christian Religion, in which works he advanced the picture of Jesus as a model of servanthood. These works taught the brotherhood of all humanity, and they spoke of racial pride as a sin. The war years, when A. Philip Randolph and other black leaders challenged the national government to show the same commitment to freedom for African Americans as they were working so strenuously to deliver for the subjugated peoples of Europe and Asia, also stimulated religious leaders to deeper considerations of the social implications of Christian thought. 1945, the Baptist Richard I. McKinney, president of Storer College in West Virginia, published with Yale University Press a book entitled Religion and Higher Education Among Negroes, which expanded on the theme of Christian brotherhood as a key element in religious higher education. Two years later, William Stuart Nelson, who was a professor at Howard, brought out the Christian way of race relations, in which he made extensive use of insights acquired during trips to India in the Far East. From Gandhi, Nelson took a definition of religion as summarized by love to the other, and a definition of sin that included economic injustice. To Nelson, when Jesus accepted the cross, he was demonstrating the extraordinary powers of pacifism put to the use of human brotherhood. Perhaps the most influential of these thinkers, who also drew from Gandhi, was Howard Thurman, dean of the Howard Divinity School from 1932. His book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which was published in 1949, featured a retelling of the five-hour verbal reply he had offered when challenged during a trip to India by Hindus from Gandhi's circle. Here was a challenge to which he responded. You have lived in a Christian nation in which you are segregated, lynched, and burned. Even in church, I understand, there is segregation. I am a Hindu. I do not understand. Here you are in my country, standing deep within the Christian faith and tradition. I do not wish to seem rude to you, but, sir, I think you are a traitor to all the darker peoples of the earth. I am wondering what you, an intelligent man, can say in defense of your position. Thurman's response was to offer a Jesus who was poor himself, outcast himself, and despised by worldly powers himself, who provided hope to all of the poor, despised, 
and outcast of the world. To those who read Thurman in the 1940s, they found him promoting belief in the literal truth of God, but also exploring the religious implications of social, economic, and political conditions. The elite thought, contributed by figures like Mays, Nicholson, McKinney, Kelsey, and Thurman, has never received its due, in part because it was given scant attention by the broader world when the major works were published, in part because the later development of the civil rights movement lost at least some awareness of its strong theological roots. But formal religious thought from elites was always complemented in the civil rights movement by a less cerebral, more visceral version of the Christian faith that remained closer to the ardent supernaturalism and naive biblical belief of slave religion. The second important point about the African-American religion that drove the civil rights movement is that it included much faith that knew not Gandhi nor A. Philip Randolph, but that had gone deep into the lives of countless ordinary believers. This faith had been severely censured by black intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois, who castigated its adherents as drugged by an opiate that disabled them from effective action in the here and now. But Charles Payne, who has written perceptively about the life and death struggle of the civil rights movement in Mississippi, understood things better. He said that the same kind of religion that could pull people apart from uh, struggling with the social and political elements of their own time could actually become a powerful force if the network in which people stood was pulled into an active confrontation with contemporary realities. And Paine's own research verified this theoretical analysis when he followed the civil rights activities of those who read the Bible simplistically, those who looked for immediate consolation from an active God, those who held pre-critical views of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as acting directly in the everyday world for redemptive purposes. He found that such ones were able to exert the same force in the public sphere as they had experienced in their private religious lives. There was, for example, Lou Emma Allen, who after a lifetime of mistreatment at the hand of Miss hands of Mississippi whites could say, of course there is no way I can hate anybody and hope to see God's face. Or there was Annel Ponder, who was jailed in Winona, Mississippi, for trying to register to vote and then beaten by guards when she refused to address them as sir, as reported by a friend who was waiting for her own attention from authorities. But anyway, she kept screaming, and they kept beating on her, and finally she started praying for them. And she asked God to have mercy on them because they did not know what they were doing. The friend was Mrs. Fanny Lou Hamer, whose experiences in the Winona Jail are at the center of Charles Marsh's fine book, God's Long Summer, and whose leadership in 1964 of Mississippi's Freedom Democratic Party has been well chronicled. After she was beaten in the Winona Jail, she had a chance to speak with the jailer's wife and the daughter who brought water and ice to the prisoners. And I told them, you all is nice. You must be Christian people. The jailer's wife told me she tried to live a Christian life. And I told her I would like to read two scriptures in the Bible. And I told her to read the 26th chapter of Proverbs in the 26th verse, whose hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness shall be showed before the whole congregation. She'd taken it down on a paper. And then I told her to read the 17th chapter of Acts in the 26th verse, hath made of one blood 
all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. And she taken that down, and she never did come back after then. The particular force of African-American religion in the civil rights movement was its potent combination of more formal elements, which could draw on Gandhi, 20th century socialism, and a measure of modern Protestant theology to fill out the prophetic element in traditional black religion, with an array of popular practices and beliefs which made the received religion of the common black churches into an explosive public force when once it was unleashed. The third important point to note about this African-American faith is its difference from other strands of American religion. Both formal and populist strands were rooted in the evangelical Protestant faith that African-Americans had taken for themselves in the early and mid-19th century. But they were also products of a significant period of independent evolution that was isolated from genetically similar strands of white evangelicalism. That independent evolutionary development, in turn, brought several adaptations that were critical for the survival of the species of African-American religion. The traits that black American Christians were displaying by the mid-20th century were greatly at odds with some that had become prominent in the evolution of white evangelical religion. These traits included the ability of theological liberals and theological conservatives to cooperate, though the former tended to picture the work of God in mythic terms, and the latter saw the work of God in intensely realistic terms. There was also a relative unconcern about co-opting ideological elements for their own religious pur purposes that were traumatizing their white contemporaries, like, for example, Gandhi's pacifism or the democratic socialism of A. Philip Randolph. In some, the African-American religion that propelled the civil rights movement was an American Protestant faith strongly rooted in the activistic religion of 19th century revivalistic evangelicalism, but by the 1950s was now quite removed from the American Protestant faith of white conservatives that was also strongly rooted in the activistic religion of 19th century revivalistic evangelicalism. I think I mentioned last night that you can trace a kind of chronological parallel from when the earlier largely white evangelical movements had mobilized gained internal strength, and then finally exerted a, a, an influence on the public to the same process in African-American religious thought after the Civil War, mobilizing, and then a period of consolidation, and then finally a period of broader social influence. The second point I'm going to race over tonight, uh, but it, it's an important one for uh, historians of more propra, and just to make sure that you know that I'm not trying to present a monocausal explanation for what went on in the 50s, 60s, and later. The success of the civil rights movement clearly owed, was owed to many factors. Um, for example, the beginning of the expansion of federal government from the 1930s was critical, uh, particularly the, the, uh, the, the use of federal government by uh, FDR and the New Deal, but then also beginning about 1940, uh, Supreme Court decisions that exerted a national legal jurisdiction over many pr uh, processes that had been um, reserved to the states. The 1944 Supreme Court decision that outlawed the whites-only primary, for example, was a major step in national uh, assertion, as was then the more famous uh, 1954 decision in Brown versus uh, Board of Education. These steps lay behind then the, the, the extensive federal uh, assertion of national power 
with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Open Housing Act of 1968. The transformation of the popular media uh, was an essential part of the civil rights movement. The acceptance in the 1950s uh, by the nation as whole of religious language to define the national purpose, you're, you're, uh, in God we trust on the money, adding under God to the pledge. These are all uh, anti-communist moves in the 1950s, but, but they, they would have a, an echo for civil rights as well. Uh, a shift in national religious demography away from the Protestant mainline toward evangelical, sectarian, fundamentalist, Pentecostal, uh, independent churches. A beginning of the thaw of, of Catholic-Protestant relations made it possible to, to think that the greatest public enemy might not, in fact, be the, the, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church, but might actually be inequities in American society. And then significant economic changes in the South uh, reduced the need for a peonage class that, that uh, freed blacks had served since the 1860s and 1870s. But I want to return to the, 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 the thesis I'm pounding tonight in point number three. Among other causes and effects, religious causes and effects were critical. And again, I'm mostly following David Chappelle in how to shape this uh, argument. Black prophetic religion uh, in, the in the powerful combination of elite and populist forms was, it seems to me, singularly influential in driving the civil rights movement. One of the strongest parts of Chappelle's general argument is his contention that the political and theological liberalism of northern mainline Protestants and secular political leaders did not have the capacity to jolt the nation into acting aggressively for civil rights political and theological liberals did consistently express their opposition to racial injustice and their hopes for full civil rights. But if I can lapse into a normative vocabulary, the liberal view of evil was too shallow to take the measure of racist sins. The liberal expectation for human progress based on education and goodwill was too feeble to overcome the entrenched antip antipathies of a racially divided society and the liberal belief in the ability of enlightened social managers to remodel American mores was compromised by a Pollyanna understanding of the problems and a hubris growing from self-righteousness. I'll drop back into being a historian now. Chappelle, in other words, was correct. To blast loose the logjam of restricted rights for black Americans, the only charge that could and did prevail was the detonation provided by African-American prophetic religion. Other parts of the argument, which I think I can skip over rapidly, uh, was the fact that white Christian elites from uh, across the spectrum of religious uh, uh, denominations either accepted or actively promoted uh, civil rights. And then when the Bible did come into play, it was mostly to support civil rights. There was popular uh, reference to the curse of Ham, which was supposed to uh, doom African, uh, Africans to servitude. A few segregationists did refer to Acts 17.26c. God determined the bounds of their habitation, but they were easily trumped by the passage that Mary Lou Hamer had quoted, Acts 17.26a. God hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. 
Significant white resistance to civil rights did exist, but the religion that backed this resistance was populous, unsupported by elite authority, and limited in the time and scope of its influence. This description of white resistance to civil rights is the most controversial contention in David Chappelle's Stone of Hope. He concedes that this resistance was very strong and that it was often supported by strong religious emotion. At the same time, he argues that white resistance to civil rights in the post-World War II era was much weaker than support for slavery in the antebellum period. And again, stressing comparisons, he notes that while resistance to civil rights led to many murders, beatings, and other acts of physical intimidation, these acts did not escalate into actual warfare and the cataclysmic carnage produced by the Civil War. He suggests that the religion driving white resistance was inchoate, populist, and extra-ecclesiastical rather than well-organized, formal, and coming from the churches. And he argues that significant leaders within the white evangelical world, which had historically been the strongest reservoir of religious support for segregation, came to accept the modern civil rights movement, and even a few came to back it actively. On all of these points, Chappelle is convincing. To a historian who deals mostly with sources from the colonial period to the Civil War, the comparative focus of Chappelle's account of the modern civil rights movement is especially impressive. And there's actually a lot more I'd like to say there because I think I actually know that earlier period, but we'll, we'll, we'll race on. Uh, one incident, uh, the influential Southern Baptist leader, W.A. Criswell, in 1956, while he was early on in the pastorate of what at the time was the largest Southern Baptist church in the nation and the largest church in Texas, and therefore the largest church in the United States, uh, gave a lecture before the South Carolina le legislature that strongly defended segregation. There wasn't in that lecture by a Southern Baptist minister a reference to a single passage from the Bible. Twelve years later, in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., when the Southern Baptist uh, Convention uh, uh, issued a statement uh, committing the church to end segregation in church life and housing, Criswell not only signed on publicly to that statement, but denounced the use of the Bible to back uh, a, a thoroughly segregated society. The part of Chappelle's argument about the weakness of religious resistance to civil rights that is open to the most serious challenge is his contention that religiously driven anti-civil rights was a force that did not long survive. Here, careful research into broader connections among race, religion, and politics by several others have revealed a more complex picture. I'm thinking of the work of Darren Docek, Kevin Cruz, Matthew Lassiter, as well as research-rich collections edited by Glenn Feldman and Clyde Webb, all of which show uh, that while overt religiously derived resistance did in fact fade rapidly in the 1970s, there may still have been more religious, um, moral, and political connections to the rise of conservative republicanism than Chappelle has actually uh, seen. If I was forced to adjudicate the rich but not harmonious findings of these studies, it would be to say that the right-wing evangelical mobilization in recent decades has involved many subgroups some of them motivated strongly by racism, some of them for whom race is a significant factor alongside many other factors, and some for whom race is not a factor at all. What all of these subgroups share, however, is a passionate resentment at the expansion of central government authority over local, family, educational, and personal life. And at this point, I'm gonna, not going to try to sort out the details of arguments, 
but will uh, offer my own narrative, which is, is influenced in many ways by these scholars. This narrative is structured by the major themes I've tried to stress in these lectures, race in connection with religion, race in connection with the exercise of government power, and race in connection with politics. The narrative begins in 1954 with the Supreme Court's decision in Brown v. Board of Education that overturned the separate but equal mandates of Plessy versus Ferguson and mandated the integration of public schools with all deliberate speed. White religious reaction to this decision was mixed. Some applauded, some resisted, more found themselves nervous about the speed, means, and agents of judicially mandated integration. But most, it seems to me, were almost ready to acknowledge that there were no good moral or religious or biblical reasons for continuing to support the persistent racist division of American society. Into that fractured force field of white Protestant reaction and the more general ramping up of central government mandating of civil rights came the well-publicized developments of late 1955. It is by now a story often told. On December 1st, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks, a black 42-year-old seamstress, with a long history of, of uh, advocacy for civil rights, refused to give up her seat on a public bus when she was asked to do so by a white man. When she was arrested and then found guilty of violating Alabama's law that prohibited racially integrated seating in public transport, Montgomery's black community mounted a boycott of the local bus system. And a leader of the boycott was, of course, the young Baptist minister, Martin Luther King Jr. What followed through a an often ironic series of events was not only the achievement of civil rights reform, but also the partial recreation of evangelical America, the expansion of a much more aggressively secular nation, the rise of the new Christian right, the public religious rhetoric of the recent American presidency, and a whole lot more. The case involving Rosa Parks eventually reached the Supreme Court, which in November 1956 followed its earlier judgment on public schooling by ruling that racial segregation on public transport was illegal. This expansion of federal power, which had begun with the New Deal, was now reaching out to change institutions and practices that had defined the daily lives of American citizens for more than a century or more. This expansion, it is important to denote, was responding to reformers whose religion was blatant Civil rights advocates believed in the intractability of evil. They believed in the requirement to struggle for justice. They believed in the need for prophetic Christianity. They believed in the, the necessity uh, of such Christianity if the toils of dehumanizing segregation were to be broken. The contrast with the situation in, in the 1950s comes fully into play at this point because in that earlier period, a full range of Southern theologians boldly defended slavery as sanctioned by Christian theology and justified by specific texts of scripture. Their religious argument nerved a whole section of the country to secede, to fight, and to die for the cause. In the 1950s, Southern segregationists clung to legal precedents but could not or would not make a convincing appeal to religion in defense of their position. And it's also significant, it seems to me, that, that the media coverage of civil rights in the 1950s was very different than the media coverage of the Civil War in the, in the 1860s. In the Civil War, you have Matthew Brady and his colleagues going out with their pencils to sketch uh, the war dead 
in the 1950s and early 1960s, you had pictures of ardent uh, civil rights demonstrators kneeling to pray, listening to scripture-filled sermons, being beat up by fat policemen with snarling guard dogs. Civil rights activists on that kind of national TV looked good. The defenders of segregation looked bad. More significantly, I think, the civil rights movement was bringing religion back into the center of American politics. It reinvigorated the possibility that some moral principles deserved higher loyalty than the established law of the land. It linked the tradi traditional religious vocabulary of moral righteousness with a liberal political vocabulary of individual right. It showed how well-organized movements could carry their message to a vast audience through the modern mass media. It forsook the pursuit of consensus for the practice of confrontation. And it was successful in pressing the government to pass new legislation and reverse judicial traditions. Because the expansion of judicial power to end segregation seemed so instinctively right to so many Americans for so many reasons, the fact of Supreme Court action on civil rights was accepted more readily than would have been the case for Supreme Court rulings concerning anything but the nation's troubled racial history. So the civil rights movement opened a wedge in the transformation of American religion and politics and the deluge of the 1960s soon followed. I think the serious literature on the 1960s shows that they went well into the 1970s and maybe into the early 1980s. But this, this literature is significant for pointing out the public trauma brought about by the Bay of Pigs invasion, um, the assassination of three national leaders, uh, nuclear face down over Cuba, military involvement in Vietnam, uh, the, the construction of the Berlin Wall, race riots in Newark and Los Angeles, student riots and protests of the Vietnam War, sudden relaxation of censorship, and all of this broadcast live in color into the living room. And to these public traumas was added uh, a series of movements, and the feminist movement would have been the first important one, I think, that advanced its claims with the techniques and moral indignation of the civil rights movement, but moved the basis of these claims from prophetic religion to modern notions of equality, for the most part. Soon there would be other reforming movements, and soon also political movements trying to resist those reforms, which also employed the same techniques and exploited the same moral indignation of the civil rights movements. For some Americans, the 60s was an exhilarating period of liberation. For others, it was a terrifying period of impending doom, and for still others, it was a vast confusion. For those who felt particularly aggrieved, inspired, threatened, or empowered, it was also a time of political quickening. Particularly for a large number of white evangelicals located especially in the South, Midwest, and Southwest, it was also a period of unusual distress. To them, it seemed that this one nation under God was being stolen away right in front of their eyes. Soon, many white evangelicals, along with increasing numbers of Roman Catholics, thought they had figured out who was responsible for taking their nation away. For white evangelicals, the civil rights movement was critical in changing attitudes about participating in politics as well as for directing their political action. The achievements of the civil rights movement from the early uh, uh, court cases in the 50s to the legislation in the 1960s received almost no significant white evangelical support. 
But by the late 60s and early 70s, white evangelicals, even in the South, were beginning to accept the inevitability of civil rights for blacks. The success of the civil rights movement for white evangelicals nationally uh, can be seen in two ways. First, once legally enforced racism was gone, the great impediment that had restricted the influence of Southern religion to only the South was also gone. Stripped of racist overtones, Southern evangelical religion, the preaching, piety, the sensibilities, above all the music, became much easier to export throughout the country. Earlier, Billy Graham had shown what a, a non-racist form of affective Southern evangelicalism uh, could do in attracting adherents. As historians Grant Wacker and Darren Dochuk have shown, influential evangelicals from the South, Pat Robertson, D. James Kennedy, Bill Bright, Jerry Falwell, Anita Bryant, and even, you could say, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, found it much easier to export the gospel sensibilities of their region once the battle for civil rights was over. The second effect was directly political. The most important factor in realigning political allegiance throughout the nation, though perhaps with exceptions in some southern locales, was not race directly. It was rather the expansion of central government that had been most keenly felt in the enforcement of desegregation. Several sociologists, and especially Robert Wuth now, have shown that the great political complaint of modern evangelicals has been directed against what is perceived as a federally sponsored intrusion of alien moral norms into situations where local mores and local leaders had once dominated. For some, this resentment began with the New Deal. For many more, it began with the, the expansion of federal power that was most clearly identified with the civil rights uh, movement. But it was much more than the civil rights movement. Think about the chronology. At the same time that the Supreme Court was taking up the Brown versus Board of Education decision and then seeking to implement that decision, um, the Soviets launched Sputnik, and the American political establishment, along with the intellectual establishment, reacted by uh, pouring billions of dollars into higher education, and especially billions of dollars into science curricula to help the United States catch up with the Soviets. Part of the science curricula that, that virtually none of the uh, movers and shakers gave much of thought to was the uh, introduction of standard biological conclusions about evolution. Historians Ron Numbers, Jim Moore have, have demonstrated that that injection of federally mandated evolutionary teaching brought the creation science movement back from the dead and made it a movement of widespread popular discontent. Yes, over the specific issues of origins, even more over the mandate from on high that something be taught that was appeared to be uh, um, contrary to family uh, teaching. Next came the uh, court rulings that, that, that uh, uh, went further in um, bending the earlier application of the 14th Amendment to the states and led to the adjudication of many aspects of religion and public life that had been hitherto mostly left to the, the states. 1962 is the Supreme Court um, exclusion of, of prayers from public schools. 1963 the exclusion of devotional readings from the Bible. And these were national rulings that affected at a stroke conventions of Protestant practice that had been, again, mostly in the Midwest and South, an accepted part of day-to-day -day life for generations of parents and children. 
Then came uh, court cases on religious symbols, activities of government-sponsored chaplains, prayer at public gatherings, religious uh, voluntary movements in the public schools. And all of these, with rare exceptions, look to white evangelicals like abuses of central government authority. For its part, um, central government authority was confidently exercised by those who had, done, who, who had sponsored, promoted, and approved of the central authority needed to break the logjam on civil rights. Then, in the early 70s, came Roe v. Wade. Interestingly enough, uh, landmark evangelical institutions like Christianity Today magazine, the Southern Baptist Convention, were initially unconcerned about Roe v. Wade. That was a Catholic issue, and it was still at a time when, if a Catholic's the bishops were for it, we were probably against it. That attitude, however, did not last long, and um, rapidly improving relations between right-to-life Catholics and right-to-life evangelicals, again, uh, forged an alliance resisting, yes, what was seen as bad policy, but even more, the imposition nationally of that bad policy. Equal Rights Amendment then became another cause celebra amongst the evangelicals, um, it was again resisted as disruptive federal meddling with, meddling with firmly settled gender tradition, and ironically, it was, it was uh, rejected by some of the evangelical and sectarian groups that had themselves been pioneers in uh, allowing women full open scope in public ministry. Gay rights, which have been an object of intense publicity in recent years, posed another difficulty. Enough evangelicals had personal experience with lesbians and homosexuals in their own families, and enough evangelicals really did believe what they said about separating condemnation of behavior from acceptance of the person, that gay issues would, I think, have remained only a mid-level concern were it not again for the perception that central authority was imposing alien legal standards. The imposition of these standards on matters concerning personal sexuality, marriage, and family formation has been particularly offensive in the, deeply, in the light of the deeply ingrained conviction shared with other Christian traditions that issues of personal sexuality, marriage, and family formation are at the height of faithful living before God. So if concern in 2004 over the ruling of the Massachusetts Supreme Court that permitted gay merger, marriage uh, was as important in that year's election as at least some commentators suggest, then the link can be drawn be, th that connects recent political divisions and the early civil rights activities. And if my reading of white evangelical mobilization on behalf of the Republican Party and right-wing causes is correct, race has not been the all-encompassing factor, but national attention to race and civil rights was the doorway through which evangelicals marched in their determination to rescue the nation. Well, let me say just a, a brief series of comments about the success of the civil rights movement. It does seem to me that with, with the, the success of the civil rights movement, uh, the old uh, classically, uh, classical Republican, Jeffersonian, Jacksonian picture of American public life died. What has taken its place is a, uh, a Democratic Party that frankly embraces the use of national power to promote appropriate ends versus a Republican Party that uses some of the older classical language against um, national intrusion, but in fact has become 
at least selectively, Whig and um, Hamiltonian itself. In other words, the Republican Party is the party of small government so long as the Democrats are proposing something. When the Republicans are proposing it, then big government's going to be all right. The political realignment that you can see on your graph uh, uh, shows that uh, from the consequences of events in the 1950s, uh, there, there has been a, a realignment. The states that were consistently above the line are now consistently below the line. The states that were consistently below the line have, have become ab above the line. This was a different kind of, of uh, alignment than realignment that was seen in the era of the New Deal. In, well, in, I'll go on to uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, comment, which he apparently made to Bill Moyers just after he signed the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. He said, it is an important gain, but I think I just delivered the South to the Republican Party for a long time to come. Johnson was thinking about what federal civil rights enforcement would do to the Democratic Party's racially based hegemony in the South. He was probably not thinking about what kind of central government authority what the kind of central government authority represented by civil rights enforcement would do to energize a white evangelical mobilization in support of the Republican Party. So now, as, as, as a sensible historian, I would give you a summary that would go like this. I've set out what I think is a coherent interpretation of American political history from the 1820s to the present. The Civil War solved the religion and slavery problem, but it did not solve the religion and race problem. Neither did Reconstruction or the national and regional arrangements that followed Reconstruction. To the extent that race and religion has ever been solved in American life, it began to be solved only after World War II when an aggressive expression of African-American religion was met by a federal government willing to exert a broad national authority on behalf of civil rights. But this was a much stronger exertion of central government authority than American Republican small-r sympathies had ever before been asked to countenance. And even it only began to address the problems of race that continued to bedevil the nation. Moreover, if the combination of black religious self-assertion and broad governmental authority led to genuine progress in some aspects of civil rights, it also led to significant political reaction among white evangelical Christians who, even as they accommodated themselves to black civil rights, were mobilized for political action by the offense they took at the expansion of governmental authority. So that should be the last line of my summary and, and of these lectures, and then I should say, well, what do you think about that? So I'm going to have to take a drink before I start further. But since the events and situations I have described are so deeply interwoven into the fabric of all American history and are also so profoundly moral in their implications, I am prompted to move beyond historical interpretation to attempt a broader conclusion. That broader conclusion is a moral conclusion which can be summarized fairly succinctly. The American political tradition has been in many ways exemplary for its morality as well as for its ideological cogency and economic efficiency. And among the most cogent elements in the ideology of American democratic republicanism is its fear of the overweening excesses of unchecked central government authority. In fact, concentrations of central 
government authority have time and again at home and abroad infringed liberties, violated eminently sound principles of subsidiarity, encouraged tyranny by unrepresented and unelected experts, and needlessly sabotaged vibrant local traditions. Moreover, the American pursuit of Republican democracy has, in fact, worked out for the great good of great numbers over many years. It is, on balance, a humane, enlightened, and good system. Comparatively speaking, it is among the best political systems ever witnessed in human history. In addition, the Christian faith that has been so prominent in so many ways throughout American history has again, on balance, done much good at home and abroad. Christian altruism, Christian philanthropy, Christian consolation, Christian responsibility, these are not the only forces for good in American history, but they loom very large and have had very positive effects. And yet, and yet, the American political system and the American practice of Christianity that have provided so much good for so many people for so many years has never been able to overcome race. 1971, Walker Piercy expressed the difficulty dramatically in his novel, Love in the Ruins, and in my view, he got it right. Percy wrote, Was it the Negro business from the beginning? What a bad joke. God's saying, here it is, the New Eden, and it is yours, because you're the apple of my eye. Because you, the lordly Westerners, the fierce Caucasian Gentile Visigoths, believed in me, and in the outlandish Jewish event, even though you were nowhere near it and had to hear of it from strangers. But you believed, and so I gave it all to you, gave you Israel and grace and Greece and science and art and the lordship of the earth, and finally even gave you the new world that I blessed for you. And all you had to do was pass one little test which was surely child's play for you, because you had already passed the big one. One little test. Here is a helpless man in Africa. All you had to do is not violate him. That's all. One little test. You flunk. God, was it always the Negro business? Now, just as in 1883, 1783, 1683, and hasn't it always been that ever since the first tough, God-believing, Christ-haunted, cunning, violent, rapacious, Visigoth, Western, Western Gentile first set foot here with the first black man? Conundrum that Walker Percy phrased so forcefully requires at least an effort at explanation. For the American history of race and religion, which has had such a manifest impact in American politics, only a complex interpretation can suffice to explain the simultaneous manifestation of superlative good and pervasive malevolence, which has characterized so much American politics and American religion in the encounter with race, neither simple trust in human nature nor simple cynicism about American hypocrisy are adequate. Economic and geographical interpretations, interpretations that feature the quest for dominion, those that stress the innate human longing for freedom all do, in fact, illuminate much in American history. 
but they by themselves do not have the capacity to explain paradoxical behaviors that coexist within the same historical framework. Some of you will have read uh, Erskine Clark's recent book, Splendid Book, Dwelling Place, a Plantation Epic, where similar beliefs in God as divine sovereign are shown to have been effective in several generations of a slave-owning family, Charles Colcock Jones, which made that family both more altruistic and more efficient in exploiting the slaves. But the book is also about the family of the, of the slaves connected to Lizzie Jones, and the Christian faith made them simultaneously more accommodating to their position as slaves and more psychologically self-reliant. Others may provide their own explanations to account for what has been so thoroughly commingled in the American history of race, religion, and politics. That commingling has included domination with liberation, false consciousness with general idealism, altruism with greed, self-seeking with self-sacrifice, economic independence with economic exploitation, tribalism with universalism, hatred with love. My own sense is that any persuasive explanation must be able to account for a mind-stretching conjunction of opposites. It must bring together the goodness of the human creation and the persistence of evil in all branches of humanity. It must bring together the reality of humans transformed by good and the incompleteness of all such transformations. It must show how the best human creations are sabotaged by their own hubris and the worst human depredations are enlightened by unexpected shafts of light. It must bring together the reality of evil in those whom we most admire and the reality of good in those whom we most despise. And it must be able to hold these contradictions, antinomies, and paradoxes in one cohesive vision. Throughout American history, what I have called the broad Calvinist tradition has been responsible for much of the raw material constituting the problems and achievements that require a consideration of contradictions, antinomies, and paradoxes. Most obviously, reliance on the Bible has produced a spectacular liberation alongside spectacular oppression. Yet from the much-used and much-abused scriptures, a long line of Christian readers have affirmed in varying accents and diverse emphases a transcendent account of profound complexity to take the measure of human nature and human achievement. Details would be different for, now I'll mention a few people I've referred to in the course of these lectures, Leonard Bacon, Henry McNeil Turner, Francis Grimke, William Jennings Bryan, Reinhold Niebuhr, Fanny Lou Hamer, but the outline would be similar. God made humans and the creation was good. And yet at the same time, humankind has fallen and will never escape the effects of original sin. Further, God offers in the work of his Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming prospect of redemption. Yet at the same time, redemption never means perfection, but rather a life filled with an awareness of one's own shortcomings and likewise filled with gratitude for all the gifts of creation, including all other human creatures. And because the manifestation of God in Jesus Christ is at the same time so thoroughly human and so thoroughly divine, so completely infinite and so completely finite, the heart of the Christian faith offers a hint of an explanation 
for how the co-minglings of contradictions, antinomies, and paradoxes can occur in other spheres of human life, like, for example, the history of American race, religion, and politics from Nat Turner to George W. Bush. Thanks very much. Professor Noel, you mentioned that um, one factor in this great transformation of the civil rights movement was a sharp change in, in Catholic-Protestant relations. And um, one area which I was curious what you thought about is the, um, I mean, after World War II, uh, there was a big movement to increase the government funding of parochial schools. And originally, um, Protestants were opposed to that. But there was some change that occurred in the mid-'70s and I was curious to what extent there, there, there was a civil rights aspect in that equation. Yes, yes uh, excellent question. I think that's a, that's a, a real good illustration for the uh, seismic transformations that have taken place in American religion and politics. Uh, um, public aid of any sort for private schools in the United States has historically been an anti-Catholic maneuver, uh, period. If you disagree with that, we can talk for a long time, but it, it, it's, it's true. Um, for, for evangelical Protestants to go to the government to ask for any kind of help in schooling, private schooling, is unimaginable so long as the whore of Rome is lurking at the gate. But when the whore of Rome turns out to be just another animal and maybe even a, a, a creature that's fighting on your side, then almost automatically, in a dramatically short period of time, uh, the stigma that had been attached to public assistance to, assistance to parochial education, a stigma attached to Roman Catholicism, was gone. Now, the reference to the civil rights is also uh, important because it is a language of parental right that actually has a, a different European communal organic state church origin, but it's the language of parental right that then gets brought into the public sphere by both Catholic and, and but especially aggressively evangelical white uh, proponents of government assistance to private schools that then shapes the, the public debate. And that second language is, is unthinkable without the, the success of the rights and Christian language of the civil rights movements. That's, I, I, actually, I'm going to incorporate that into the printed version because that's a wonderful case of, of the transformations that were involved. To suggest an alternative explanation than the one you've just given, I would suggest that with Brown versus the Board of Ed in 54 and the movement of the Southern strategy it led to the creation of the Christian Academy movement. And I would suggest that the Christian Academy movement, which was entirely white, resulted in two factors. One was the closing in many counties in the South of the public education system. But more importantly, when Jimmy Carter decided to tax 
the Christian academies because of their position on race, it moved the evangelical movement by a magnitude of 100 in terms of bringing what even the Republican Party acknowledges as the soldiers. And so I think that the relationship between funding for private schools has to take into account the very racist nature of the Christian academies. And I think also the, the evangelical movement has to address the, the whole question of why the Christian academies came into existence and who they were training and the impact. The other comment that I have... Can I, can I respond to that? Because I actually think that that's not an alternative to the explanation that I have, but it's an expansion of it. I did note, I think I said, at least in the original draft, that, that um, the Republican White Evangelical Alliance has several types in it. One is a type for whom race, as you've described, was central. And I think you've described exactly what happened with that group. There were others, however, that make up a substantial part of the new Christian right who, for whom race was a much less important factor and, and a considerable number for whom race was not a factor at all. The, uh, the, the electoral information, the electoral results on the first and second Carter elections are, are, are very interesting because in 1976, as actually you can tell on the squiggly lines in the back of your outline, Carter, Carter reverses the uh, movement of the once solid South toward the Republicans and slows the movement of, of the, uh, the once Republican North, New England especially, into, into the Republican column. When he is, um, to use the language of the right, exposed for the kind of policies that you just articulate, articulated, then the trajectory that is there from the 50s continues on abated. The 76 election, along with the 1960 election, 1928 election, are the elections that, that are the most dramatic instances of, of uh, in-group religious adherence in voting. And until Carter um, uses expanded federal power against the white academies, he is uh, regarded much more favorably in the South than the predecessors, uh, who's in 72, uh, McGovern and then Humphrey, uh, and Johnson himself in, in, in 64. Uh, that, however, is only part of the picture. Uh, the, the transformation of the South is, is a very large part of the religious right um, evangelical coalition, but it's far from the whole side. I've got a bit in the paper here about Francis Schaeffer, who is actually an active anti-racist social and theological conservatives whose anti-abortion teaching uh, draws many northern, western, southwestern evangelicals in, into the Republic Alliance for whom race is either not a factor or it's actually the opposite kind of factor. But for, the, for that section of the country that you're talking about, I, I think you're entirely right. Now, go ahead for your next point. Well, my second point was when you talk about white Christian elites uh, I would suggest that there was also the movement within the South of the creation of the citizens' councils, the white citizens' councils, which were made up of both the business elite, the educational elite, as well as the church elite in those communities. And they were set up specifically in resistance to integration. So I would challenge the question about, or I'd, I'd ask what you mean by the uh, elite evangelicals right, as right. opposed good, that's a, that's to local good, elite. Right. That's a good question and, and one that deserves further elucidation. 
What I was contrasting was this, the situation in the uh, 1850s and on into the early 1860s when not only uh, individuals of local clout, but individuals recognized as thought leaders in the region mounted a, a persuasive uh, religious argument on behalf of slavery. Now, I know it was persuasive because it persuaded a great number of northerners that it was simply wrong to call slavery a, a malum and say, a, a evil in itself. The situation in the, uh, that you're describing is where, in fact, uh, local leaders, local church leaders, do participate, people of clout do participate in the formation of white citizens' uh, councils. But to, to, to my knowledge, from having read the secondary sources, there simply is no literature with, a, with a, any kind of a credible moral or biblical basis to back the actions of the white citizens' councils. And you can say, well, that shows how unimportant articulated intellectual discourse is in the United States of America, but I, I don't think so. And I, I think that at least in some of those areas that had strong citizen councils, strong white academies, there has in fact been change over time, especially where, for example, the, uh, the, the majority uh, declarations of the Southern Baptist Convention, which from the late 50s have been specifically anti-segregationist proposed and ratified by a certain kind of academic elite. But in, in those places where the local Baptist churches actually read and think about and contemplate what the national denomination has uh, decreed. So actually, I, 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 I welcome both points. I, I take them as, as correctives, but not really as overthrowing the general thesis that's being articulated. A little off topic. This was a Presbyterian school. It certainly was at one time. At one time. In many ways, it's more Christian today than it was 250 years ago, by some measures. Can Protestant purity be maintained in climbing to a greater stature in the secular world. In Protestant, I didn't catch the word. Purity. Purity. And if this puts you on the spot in yeah, light sure of does. the fact uh, that you're... I'd be very happy to talk at great length about Princeton between 1746 and 1818. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the book the and I'm waiting the for the movie. The 21st century. <laughs> well, I, 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 that's a, a good question and, and a realistic question. Uh, I'm an evangelical Protestant myself, and I, I recognize within me um, what I would call the God-graciously given strength of evangelical Protestantism, which is... Which is um, uh, feeling and expressing energy that flows from an understanding of the relationship between God and people. 
But I also sense within myself, and I think I've observed as a historian, the corresponding characteristic weakness of evangelical religion, which is um, a weak or absent uh, sense of proportion, balance, uh, equanimity, gravitas. Evangelicals are very much a ready, fire, aim people. And from the uh, mid-20s into the early 50s, evangelicals treated politics as either of no importance or as a positive evil to be shunned, which was a mistake. Beginning with uh, some of the things I've talked about tonight, evangelicals have reversed course and treated it as an almost all-important thing. It was a it's been a mistake. Uh, I, I, purity is a tough one for a historian to talk about. In, uh, reasoned intelligence, ba balanced intelligence, balanced theological understanding. I, I would hope to see, yes, uh, as more Catholics, Jews, Muslims, evangelicals take part in, in the, the opportunities often offered by a world like Princeton University, I would hope that um, to the degree that's fitting with the nature of the convictions, people will learn civil discourse, will learn how to under uh, stress arguments rather than to overstress them, to, to, to be rhetorically cool rather than to rhetorically hot, to respect those who have different opinions as creatures made in the image of God who might actually be smarter than you are. But these are traits that, uh, by, the, by the very nature of evangelical Christianity, have been rare on the ground in evangelical history. So if there were savvy, committed believers who learned how to operate in a setting where reasonable discourse is given at least formal um, approval and um, a premium is placed upon acquiring broad and deep knowledge before making decisions, that can only be for the good. I think it would be good for the uh, true believers who took part in that. I think it would be good for the secular educational environment. I haven't answered your question, but I've, I've said I think as much as I know how to say about it. I appreciate it. Thank you. I think of another uh, better note to end, John. Uh, would you join me in thanking Mark?